question may be dependent on age and whether you pay any attention to movies, but who has seen the movie Mighty, The Mighty Ducks? Okay, quite a few of you. So you will remember that there was this guy that was in The Mighty Ducks, and his name was Goldberg. He was going to be their goalie. He showed some potential in that, but he had a problem. He was scared to death of get hitting by a, getting hit by a puck. And so he was totally ineffective, because every time somebody shot, he would just duck instead of trying to stop it. Now the thing was, they told him, with all that equipment that you have on you, you're safe. You can't be hurt. But he didn't believe them. And still, whenever the puck came, he would duck. So they took him and tied him to the goal. You can't really see it too well there, but he's tied there and he's wondering what's going on, and then the whole team lined up and started shooting pucks at him. And he was scared to death, and he started screaming and hollering, I'm gonna die. And after a few minutes, he realized, I'm still alive. And you know what, that puck just bounced off my helmet and it didn't hurt. I can't be hurt. I am invincible. And suddenly, he was a great goalie. And it just totally impacted his life. Well, the remedy for his problem was simply this. He had to learn that he was indeed safe. So what does ice hockey and scared goalies have to do with spiritual warfare and fighting against the schemes of the devil? Well, our, our big point today Mitchell's moving it for me, which is probably going to be, I'm going to just let you see if you can keep doing that, and we'll see if we get it right, because I guarantee you I'll get it wrong. So, As a child of God and a follower of Christ, you will be hit with a lot more than a hockey puck. And until you come to know that you are safe, you will be ill-equipped to stand against the schemes of the devil. So bear with me as we, we work our way through Ephesians from the beginning up to the point of our passage today. Just see how did we get to this place and then we'll try to make those connections. So back in chapter one, Paul tells these believers where the focus of his prayers for them lies. Here's what he says in Ephesians one and verses 17 to 18. He says, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. And then he goes on and he tells them several things that they just need to know. He told them that they were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. He told them that they were predestined to become, to be adopted as sons. He told them about their redemption, that God would buy them from the marketplace of sin and he would pay for it with his own blood. He told them that Christ's final victory will be over everything. Everything would be lined up underneath Christ. He told us that along with Christ, we would inherit all things. 
He said that we would get the sealing of the Holy Spirit as a down payment, which guaranteed that all these other things that he mentioned would in fact be true. They would come about. And then he reminded them that all of this, all of this that was coming to them, to us, was not a list of things that we might be able to earn, but were granted to us by the grace of God according to God's good pleasure. He went on and he told them that life in Christ came to those who were already spiritually dead, who had been spiritually dead. You see, those who are not in Christ are spiritually dead. See, when, when I came to know Christ, when I started to realize I needed him, I didn't need somebody to help clean my life up a little bit. I needed to be raised from the dead. I was spiritually dead. Scripture teaches us that if you are not born again, if you are not alive in Christ, you are spiritually dead. In fact, it says you are an enemy of God. You are under the wrath of God. You're not safe. You're actually in danger of eternal separation from God unless you come to him while there is still time. And he taught them more. He said that there is a, a unity among everyone who is in Christ. He taught them that no matter what your background is, no matter what your nationality or your ethnicity or your skin color or how great a sinner you perceive yourself to be, when you come to Christ, you are part of his body, part of his family. And he showed them this in a very particular way. He says, I have taken the two groups of people in the world who had the most animosity and hatred towards each other. In that time, and probably in any time since, those two groups were the Jews and the Gentiles. They absolutely hated each other. If, they, uh, if a Jew was walking down the street and a Gentile was coming the other way, he'd go to the other side so he didn't have to get near him. They were totally apart from each other. And he said, I've taken them and those who are in Christ, whether they're Jew or Gentile, are now a family. They're brothers and sisters. So much to the point where Paul, when he's writing to the Colossians, he says, in Christ, there is neither Greek and Jew. There isn't circumcision and uncircumcision. There isn't barbarian and Scythian and slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. And then he went on when he gets to chapter 4 and he says, in light of all this, because of all these things that are true of what God has done for you, those of you who do know Christ ought to respond by walking worthy of the calling that you have received. He said that in verse 1 of chapter 4. And then he went on and started to tell them what this worthy walk would look like. He says, when you're in the church, not in the building, but when you're among the the brothers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, that's who the church is. The, you, you will be characterized by unity. Now, in order to practice that unity, he says you're going to have to have humility and gentleness and patience and just plain putting up with one another. Yeah, that, that's us. We, we need to be willing to put up with one another. 
But when you go outside the church, when you're out in the world, he says that worthy walk would be characterized by a lifestyle that is in contrast to what you see in the world. And he went to describe that. He says, you will be telling the truth instead of lies. You will do honest work and be generous instead of stealing. You'll use uplifting and encouraging speech instead of foul language. You'll be characterized by kindness and compassion instead of anger and bitterness. You live a life of purity, not one of immorality. You will follow the truth. You won't be led astray by empty arguments. So you won't act foolishly like you're controlled by alcohol. Instead, you'll act wisely, controlled by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I need to make clear, when, when he gives these kind of examples, he's not saying everybody who's outside in the world always is lying and stealing and cheating and using foul language. But he says, you must be looked at and be seen in contrast to the world. And certainly your life has to be in contrast to the way it was before you found Christ. You are constantly becoming more and more like Christ. He went on and talked to them about how their life would look in relationships, and particularly in relationships that involve one having authority over another. That's going to happen a lot in our lives, if you think about it. In almost any situation you're in, somebody's in authority over you, and in a lot of situations, you're in authority over somebody else. It says where you, you are the one who is in authority, exercise that authority like Christ does, and that is with love and compassion and sacrifice. He says where you are under authority, you are to yield to that authority as the church is supposed to yield to their head, Christ. And if all of these things that we were to do in order to walk worthy of God wasn't enough, when he gets to chapter 6, he says, all of this you're going to do while fighting a supernatural enemy. In Ephesians 6, 10 to 12, he says this, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. Man, is that overwhelming? He's probably saying, how in the world can I do that? Well, it's a good question, and it's a simple answer. You can't. Not in your own strength. You cannot. If you're going to fight a supernatural enemy, you will need supernatural power. And it's interesting because way back in chapter 1, when Paul started telling people, there's things you need to know, he said, one of the things that you need to know about is the superabundant spiritual power of God that's not only available to you, but is already at work in you. He said in Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. And then he goes on and he says, one of the things you need to know is about 
what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the mighty working of his strength. And if you understand all of the Greek stuff, which I don't understand, but I can read the stuff that people write that do, this is specifically talking about power that is at work in you right now, not just something that's out there that you might find a way to grasp sometime. Well, that brings us up to the section in chapter 6 that we've been working through for the past few weeks, the armor of God. Now, when it talks about the armor of God, of course, he's not talking about once you're saved, you get handed a belt one day, and once you have that belt and you know how to wear that right, you later get some shoes, and eventually you get a breastplate. Now, this is not physical things. This is simply an illustration that Paul is using. He says, a Roman soldier, when he's going to go out and fight his enemies, he needs to put his armor on. A soldier would not last very long if he went out a bench against a bunch of people who were wearing their armor and he was standing there in his bathing suit and had nothing else. He would be cut down pretty quickly. He says, just like that soldier needs to be equipped to fight his enemy, you need to be equipped to fight your enemy. And so you need not a belt, you need truth. You see, Satan is the father of lies. Amen. But in, back in chapter 4 and verse 21, it says that the truth is in Jesus. You see, the more truth that you know and the more you are just founded on that truth, the better equipped you are to fight Satan's lies. That's why we, we constantly seek to study the truth as opposed to just studying the lies. If you decide you're going to study the lies, you'll spend the rest of your life and there will be lies coming faster than you can keep up with them. But the truth is in the word of God. If you learn the truth, the lies will just stand out like a sore thumb. Well, he says you need to put on righteousness. Not only does righteousness um, does God see us as righteous because we have been given the righteousness of Christ that has been just accounted to or imputed to our account as the words they use. But what this means is when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. But that's not what the world sees. The world sees the way you live. And what Paul tells them is he wrote this to Titus in Titus chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, any opponent will be ashamed because he doesn't have anything bad to say about us. So not only do we have the righteousness of Christ put on us by God, we are gradually becoming more righteous as we seek to live like Christ. And the result is when people look and want to accuse you, they have nothing bad to say about you. He talks about us needing the readiness that comes from the gospel. And Zach taught us very well about that a couple weeks ago, how we need to remind ourselves daily of the gospel, all of the gospel, and how that gospel brings peace between us and our brothers and sisters in Christ. It brings peace between us and God. If you know and remember the gospel, 
or as, as we say, as we preach it to ourselves on a regular basis, we will be well equipped to stand against the devil's condemnation, which he does. He will tell you, you are terrible, you are rotten, you're, you could never go to be with God. And he will also try to divide brother from brother. And knowing and being firm in that gospel, you'll be able to stand against those attacks. And then last week, that taught us about faith. You might think, yeah, but my faith is so weak. But you know, we learn it is not the strength of your faith. It is the strength of the one in whom your faith lies. And our strength is in Christ. And his strength is greater than we can imagine. As he puts it, it's greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And then we get to our passage. So let me read you the total of the passage we want to cover today. Take the helmet of salvation. That's our passage for today. That's why I can go this long before I even get to it. What is the helmet of salvation? How does it help us in our spiritual warfare? And how do you take it? Well, first, let's look at what it is. Well, of course, it's not a helmet. We don't expect to wear tinfoil hats or any other kind of hat that is going to help you in your spiritual warfare. This is simply an illustration, a metaphor, a helmet of salvation. So, really, the question is, what is salvation? Well, if you are somebody who would say, I am saved, what you usually mean is there was a point in my life in the past when I confessed Christ as my Savior. And you might say, I have been saved. Because there, there is a past version or past aspect of salvation. In uh, Romans 10.9, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, that is, he is God, and he is my master, he is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And if you've done that, you could say, I have been saved. This already happened. Now, there are, there are many places in scripture where it says, do this and you will be saved. And most of them are written to people who have already been saved. And they don't give all the details of all of them in every place. Sometimes it just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Others it will say, repent and believe. And various things. But Paul summed it all up in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, for I passed on to you He's talking to the Corinthian church. I passed on to you as most important what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. These are facts. Paul says, here's what happened. Jesus came into the world. He doesn't mention it here, but he lived a perfect sinless life. And then he died on a cross for your sins, not for his sin, 
but in your place as a substitute for you. And he was buried. He was really dead. And three days later, he rose from the dead. Those are facts. And just knowing those facts is simply the beginning. You then need to believe that these things are indeed true. But that's still not the end of it. Once you know the facts and you believe they are true, you must put your trust totally in the work of Christ, adding nothing. You don't add rituals. You don't add good deeds. You don't add giving money. You don't add anything. It's simply putting your trust in what Christ has already done for you. Now, the interesting thing is it's likely you'll do all of those things. You'll go through rituals like baptism. You will do good deeds because that's what Christ did. You'll give money because he says that's the way things work. You will do all those things, but not to obtain salvation, but as a result of your already having salvation. So when you put your trust in Christ, you can rightly say, I have been saved. But that's not all there is to salvation because there's a present aspect of salvation. You are being saved from the power of sin. Paul says this just back again in 1 Corinthians 15, but in the first two verses, just before he gets to that part, he says, now I want to make clear to you Mitchell's sleeping back there oh. okay you get the next one. Oh, we don't have it I'll read it to you so he says now I want to make clear for you brothers and sisters the gospel I preached to you which you received in the past on which you have taken your stand, you've already done this, and by which you are being saved. So there's a present aspect to the salvation. Um, in Romans 8.29, he says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And that's kind of a process thing. It's something that from the time you are saved, until the time you see Christ, you will be in the process of being conformed to the image of his son. He explains that this way to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, he says, We all with unveiled faces are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That's not the way we normally talk about things, but he says we are looking at God, at Christ, as well as we can. It's kind of like in a mirror. It's not perfectly clear, but as we see him, we are being transformed into someone like him. And when he says from glory to glory, that's a little bit now, or step by step, we would probably say. And it's a process that will go on until that day that you see him clearly because you're there with him and then you'll be like him. So we call this process sanctification or being conformed to the image of Christ. But rest assured, it is the present part of your salvation. 
There is also a future aspect of salvation. You will ultimately be saved from the very presence of sin. Scripture sometimes calls this being glorified. And here's an interesting thing. You, nobody gets one part without getting the other two. Nobody is glorified in heaven who hasn't been saved and been transformed or been sanctified. Nobody is sanctified who hasn't been saved who won't be glorified someday. All three come together. He says this in Romans 8, 29 to 30. He says, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God began this process before the foundation of the world. And he says he's going to bring it into completion. It's this hope of glorification the future aspect of salvation that we're talking about when we refer to the helmet of salvation. Now, they, they use that word hope of salvation for a particular reason. Um, in Romans, it says that we're saved by hope, but hope that is seen isn't hope because you see it. Why would you hope for something that you already see? Hope in Scripture is a a confident expectation of something that God says is going to take place. But you haven't seen it yet, so you call it the hope. There are, there are a couple of reasons that I am convinced that he is referring to that future aspect of salvation when we get to Rome, uh, Ephesians 6 here. First of all, he is writing to born-again believers in the city of Ephesus. These are people who have already at some point in their past put their trust in Christ. And while it is true that you must be trusting in Christ in order to take advantage of any of the spiritual armor, it really doesn't make sense after you've explained how to use three or four pieces of the armor to say, oh yeah, but by the way, you got to get saved too. Now, he's talking to people who have already been saved. That's already happened in the past for these particular folks. The present aspect of our salvation, that, that sanctification we talked about, would probably be better pictured when he's talking about the breastplate of righteousness because he's talking about you becoming more and more like Christ. But here might be the the strongest reason for understanding this to be the, the future aspect of our salvation. Over in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, Paul is also talking about putting on the armor of God. He says this, but since we belong to the day, he had been talking about those who live in the darkness and in the night, but since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled and put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. That aspect of salvation that we hope for. Not we hope like we hope we get more snow or we hope we don't get more snow, but a confident expectation of what God has promised to be the case. So this hope of salvation 
is the confidence that we have that we will be ultimately glorified. Or as Paul put it in his letter to the Philippians, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So let's talk some about this certain hope of our future glorification. Can we be sure that this is actually true? That if a person has been saved, he will be sanctified, he will be glorified. Well, the Apostle John, when he wrote his account of Jesus' life, he told us his purpose of writing the way that he did. He said this right near the end of his book. He said, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And he, so he's, he's telling us, when I wrote this gospel, it was so that you would believe and you would have life in his name. And he wrote of eternal life. And he made it clear that this, this was the certainty of eternal life, not the possibility of eternal life. Here are a couple of things that he wrote. Jesus said, and this is in chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, Jesus is God. God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. He knows everything past, present, and future. He knows where you will be for all eternity. And he says, I will give them eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. Over in chapter 10 of John, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, you guys who are old enough to have played with little kids, have you ever taken a penny, or maybe you need to use a quarter nowadays, but and put it in your hand and held on it, and you tell the little kids, if you can get it out of my hand, you can have it. And they try, and they try, and eventually you probably give it to them, but they can't get that out of your hand. Well, this is kind of what Jesus is saying. I am holding this in my hand, and nobody's getting it out of there. 
And if that's not enough for you, my father, he's stronger than anybody. It's like he's got it on top of my hand. If you can't get it out of my hand, you're certainly not getting it out of his hand. This is secure. So when you know the facts of the gospel, that is Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again, and you believe those things to be true, and you put your trust completely in what Christ has done, then you will have been saved. You will be in the process of being saved, and you will one day be finally saved. You can with confidence say, I am safe. Nothing will separate me from the love of God. He will raise me up to be with him in glory for all eternity. This is a doctrine we refer to as eternal security. It says that when a person believes the gospel and he puts his trust in Christ alone, he is in Christ and so shall he ever be. There are people who object to this doctrine. There are people who would say, but, but what about this guy I know? who made a profession of faith, and he got baptized, and then a year later, or five years later, or 15 years later, he just walked away from the faith. Or what about that guy who thinks, you know, I've got my ticket to heaven punched. I can live however I want now. What about him? Or what about that guy who makes a profession of faith and you never see one lick of change in his life? He's the same guy he's always been, Maybe not terrible, maybe not great, but there's just no change in his life. You know, the Bible does speak to all of these things, but that's, unless you want to stay here for another 45 minutes, we're not going to cover that today. If, if that's a thing that you're hung up on, well, come and talk to us. I'm sure it's going to come to be a message at some point because the scripture speaks to those things. But... We have eternal security. So now let's get back to Goldberg and make the connection. How does this helmet of salvation help you in your spiritual warfare? Well, you remember in his original condition, Goldberg was ill-equipped to be useful as a goalie. Let's get Goldberg up there again. Okay. Even though with all that protective equipment, he was safe, but it wasn't until he believed what was already true that he became effective. And so until you realize that not only have you been saved, but you are safe, until you realize that, you will be ill-equipped to fight that supernatural foe. But once you do realize you are safe, you can, with Paul, say, nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, I need to remind you that this letter was not written to the church leadership in the city of Ephesus. It was written to the entire congregation. And I expect that that congregation there in Ephesus was made up of some old people and some young people and some men and some women and some children, some people that were really strong and probably some sickly people 
or handicapped people. There were probably some babes in Christ, probably a lot of them, and maybe even a few that were spiritually mature. Well, the armor that God has provided is just as effective whether you're the old one or the young one, or the sickly one who can't get out of his bed, or the strong guy, or the mature one, or the babe in Christ. Now, the babe in Christ might need some help getting that armor on, but it'll be just as effective for him as it is for anyone else. I'm just going to tell you bluntly, you will be attacked by evil supernatural forces. Now, you look around you at your brothers and sisters. Lord willing, they are prepared to put on their gospel armor and fight alongside of you. Hopefully, you won't be sitting there in your pajamas hoping somebody else has put their armor on and will protect you. If you think that you can stand against a supernatural enemy in your own strength, you are in for some real difficulties and disappointments. And folks, we have no intention of hunkering down in our little stronghold hoping to survive the war. We intend to storm the gates of hell and be victorious. Not because we are valiant warriors, but because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And you realize that you're, you're fighting alongside a bunch of invincible soldiers? Our victory is already assured. And when the war is over, we have a king who can take every, every soldier that gave his life in the battle and raise him up from the dead and keep him with him for all eternity. You have all of the armor that you need to defeat our wicked foe. And one of the key pieces is the helmet of the hope of salvation. Let's pray to God. Heavenly Father, you are so kind to us. Our enemy will seek to discourage us and disappoint us. When we have that helmet of salvation and the, and the knowledge that we are in Christ and you cannot take us out, no one will take us out. You have guaranteed we will spend all eternity with you. What a glorious truth it is. We have no reason to fear Satan's attacks. He is much stronger than us, but he is no comparison to you. Lord, our desire is that each and everyone here will first be able, be willing to trust in you for they can say for the rest of their lives on this earth, I have been saved. That they can look at their lives and see that they are being saved. They're gradually becoming more and more like Christ. But then as we go seeking to fight that wicked foe, that we will also have the helmet of the hope of salvation, knowing that Satan can't harm us. The worst he can do is send us more quickly to be with you for all eternity.
and what a glorious thing that would be. Lord, you are a great God, and you have been so kind to ones that are so unworthy. We're thankful for it. We look forward to seeing the victories that you win and are humbled that you are willing to use even ones such as us to fight in your behalf. We pray and thank you in Jesus' name.